This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 28, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. Ideas from the last generation of law professors find their way into the minds of today's national leaders, from Barack Obama to Bill and Hillary Clinton. Unfortunately, many of these ideas, when applied, represent a grave threat to liberty. So says Cato Institute senior fellow Walter Olson in his new book, Schools for Misrule, which is available for sale at Cato.org. A couple of years ago, lawyers filed a class action lawsuit against Apple, uh, arguing that the iPod, which was just at the flush of its popularity then, uh, was capable of uh, too high a volume. And as a result, people who listened over long periods uh, might have damaged their hearing. And they wanted money on behalf of not only the uh, client they had who did not allege that he had uh, himself had his hearing injured but just said that he wanted um, cash for the you know, the consumer fraud, uh, and also everyone else who had bought one of the devices, uh, none of whom had signed up with these lawyers. And... <clears throat> You know, it sounds on the surface just like one of these wacky things that uh, you can sue for in the United States, and it is, because you couldn't sue for that sort of thing in most countries. Uh, You would be laughed out of court or thrown out of court much more quickly. Um, But as I trace in this book, uh, it is the result of uh, the influence of legal academia. American law is so different because uh, America has uh, absorbed so much influence from uh, legal academia. And that, that's true both on the personal injury side. Why would you sue uh, the maker of the musical device over your loss of hearing over years? Uh, and it's true on the class action side. You know, Why would a million people, most of whom don't have the grievance at all, uh, all be brought in to sue? In this particular example, where did this come from? Personal injury law, with all of its excesses, uh, we owe to uh, a man uh, named William Prosser, dean at Berkeley, uh, and the most influential uh, person who's ever written about torts, and yet completely unknown to the general public, only known to lawyers, because he operated through case books and through law review articles. Uh, In the case of class actions, there was another um, somewhat better known nationally, Professor Harry Calvin of the University of Chicago, who wrote an article, again, only lawyers paying any attention for years and years, uh, saying it's not nearly easy enough to uh, organize a class action. We ought to um, remove uh, a lot of the old uh, rules that keep lawyers from doing that. We ought to uh, uh, correct the failings of the marketplace by uh, letting lawyers come up with lawsuits more or less on their own and bring them uh, to to court. Where else do we see the effects of legal academia um, essentially – attacking a lot of the foundations of of what we understand to be uh, the foundations of of law today? Well, I give examples from all over the place. Uh, In the uh, great upheaval of the so-called rights revolution of the 1960s, there were some good developments in the law, but there were also uh, a lot of developments that um, uh, made for much more litigation without clear benefits from a libertarian standpoint, certainly. Uh, uh, environmental law sprang up in such a way to make it easy to sue over projects, uh, whether they were good or bad projects, and to tie them up and drag them out. Uh, and I, I argue that, um, it wound up not discriminating very well between the good and the bad projects. It, it, you know, you, you got a t- kind of environmental law that made everything more expensive, but eventually a lot of bad projects could be built anyway. Um, You go on through um, uh, what's called institutional reform litigation in which courts take over school systems, uh, take over uh, parts of city governments or state governments, uh, 
in the great majority of time, one of the complaints is that they're not spending enough. Um, uh, you know, they, they uh, ought to make education better by uh, you know throwing another billion dollars at a state school system. And this litigation has been tremendously successful in one sense, in that courts have. Uh, been willing to hear the cases and advocates have gotten many, 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 many billions of dollars more for the various public departments. Uh, what it has done uh, from a libertarian standpoint, of course, is m- make the things much harder to reform and that it no longer matters so much whether you elect uh, co- budget cutters at the state level. They've got a consent decree or they've got a court order uh, and they've got to spend the money. Uh, and it also impairs uh, the democratic process because it, what it does is move uh, power off books to the lawyers who have negotiated the deals with the school department or the police department or whatever. One of the examples that you cite is sexual harassment law, which you trace all the way back to one law professor, Catherine McKinnon. Yes. And if you want an example of how uh, one professor's thinking can, uh, not over a period of decades, but really uh, just a very few years, uh, create a whole area of law, it is uh, sexual harassment law, which sprang up the way it did in the United States with uh, its most problematic aspects as far as its collision with free speech on certain issues and its um, strange handling of issues of whether things are welcome or, or uh, uh, objectionable. Um, this was all because a professor named Catherine McKinnon uh, sat down and wrote this tremendously influential stuff and carried everything before her. Other countries do it differently because other countries didn't have Catherine McKinnon. Like in any other field, there are uh, ideas that become fashionable or fads. How does that play itself out in, in when it comes to lawyering and law schools? We've had uh, phase after phase in the fashionable ideology of law school. And uh, I trace it back quite a long way. Uh, way back in the early 20th century, Roscoe Pound was speaking about law as applied social engineering. And you had a vogue for expertise in which um, you know, the vast government programs would be planned out from law schools. And then uh, things changed around uh, after World War II, uh, they began thinking not so much of uh, we will go in uh, and uh, organize the government as we will find ways of suing the government and the courts will force the government to be progressive and to expand and do all, all sorts of things. And you got the public interest law movement of the 1970s. Uh, that uh, was tremendously powerful and continues to this day, but the ideological fashions kind of moved on. Uh, you had the um, critical legal studies movement, which d- didn't hang around very long and was succeeded by the, um, in some ways, more successful critical race theory and legal feminism, uh, the applications of identity politics to law. And that uh, really um, uh, pulled together a big following because so many uh, young new law professors uh, in the 80s and 90s saw themselves as, uh, I need to be a feminist law professor. I, you know, I'm, I'm here representing my race or whatever. In some sense, crafting a, a crusade uh, that had to do with uh, who they were. Yeah, it, it, and by throwing themselves into identity politics crusades, they um, 
had a big impact on some of the issues that reached the wider public. And uh, one example is that I give is the slavery reparations movement, which uh, um, had been considered very, very marginal. No one took it seriously for a long time. And then all of a sudden in the 1990s, uh, it was everywhere. And for a few years, uh, it uh, really was considered to be on the national agenda. It was beginning to get favorable editorials and uh, endorsements at different places. And I trace that back. It was because there were all of this, these junior faculty uh, you know, doing their tenure papers on <laughs> – <laughs> slavery reparations, and they were sufficiently out of touch with American public opinion that they didn't realize that uh, once this got out to be debated uh, beyond the law schools themselves, it would be overwhelmingly unpopular. And then it was finished off, I argued, by 9-11, which put the courts in a mood, you know, look, we can kick this out. And, uh, you know, in the mood of the country after 9-11, uh, no one's going to uh, object if the courts kick out this sort of thing. So they did. 9-11 being a, a, an example of a jarring event that uh, that uh, changed a lot of people's attitudes, does that give rise then to some uh, odd legal theories that uh, that might have might have more prominence uh, after following an event like that? Well, we're still working through the uh, various issues, mo- many of which I don't get into in the book about um, uh, domestic security and, and that sort of thing. The, what I do point out is uh, an area that has uh, been uh, heated up very much by uh, the whole terrorism and security uh, set of issues, but also had a life of its own uh, even before that, is uh, international human rights. And that is the hot area in law schools these days. Uh, it is the area where uh, there are the most number of new projects, the new most new professorships and so forth. And uh, obviously it's got some aspects that we can strongly sympathize with uh, when you go out and protect uh, dissidents in oppressive countries. But much of the energy comes from the idea that all sorts of things that we think of as conventional domestic policy issues uh, should actually be reexamined. We might be violating uh, international human rights by not liberalizing labor law. That's one of the big claims. We might be violators of international human rights because we um, uh, have not pushed national health insurance uh, far enough. Indeed, one of the shocking things earlier this year was uh, the UN issued a report very critical of the United States as allegedly a violator of uh, international human rights. And the Obama administration responded not with the outrage that I think many <laughs> citizens might say, what on earth is the UN getting, where, is the, where are they getting off uh, saying that the US is, is a human rights violator? Instead, they said, Oh, you shouldn't be so harsh. Uh, why, last year alone, we improved our human rights record by passing Obamacare, thus ensuring wider access to health. You know, they buy into so many of the premises, and this is part of the danger, is that uh, the Obama administration's State Department includes all sorts of people who made their reputation in as, as academics, uh, supporting the idea that we all have to be part of this new and constantly redefined world of human rights. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of the new book, Schools for Misrule. You can order your copy at cato.org.